Welcome to a special edition of the Science and the City podcast, presented by the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science at the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, David Hoffman. In the last episode of the podcast, we interviewed Dr. Mandana Arabi, Executive Director of the Sackler Institute, about a global research agenda the Institute has been working for the last two years to create. In December of 2012, the Sackler Institute hosted a two-day conference at the Academy where leaders from all aspects of the nutrition community were invited to speak and interact and offer their perspectives on the agenda and on the current state of the field in general. You can see video clips of highlights from their presentations and find a link to an Academy e-briefing of the entire event at www.nutritionresearchagenda.org. And today, we're going to share some behind-the-scenes interviews we conducted during that conference, where we were able to learn a little bit more about the participants' perspectives on the agenda and on the future direction of nutrition science. To begin with, there was near-unanimous agreement that, perhaps more than in any other field, there's an urgent need for an organized, prioritized research agenda for nutrition. That's because nutrition, as much as it's a single field, is a point of connection for dozens of fields. Biology and biochemistry to understand the basic function of nutrients in the body, but also agriculture and botany and zoology to understand where food comes from and how it's produced. Psychology and the social sciences to understand why people make the choices they make about food and also economics, political science, and marketing to understand how food is bought and sold and therefore made available for consumption. All of these fields have very different ways of approaching problems and use different professional languages. One of the primary goals of this research agenda is to begin to create a kind of dictionary that will allow open translation of ideas amongst all of these different disciplines and therefore allow for truly multi-sectoral approaches to solving the enormous problem of how to most successfully feed the almost 7 billion people who live on this planet. Here's Dr. Jay Barkley, a clinical nutrition researcher with the Kenya Medical Research Institute, followed by Dr. Rebecca Stoltzfus, Director of International Nutrition and Global Health at Cornell University. There's a real need to generate some consensus about what's, what's going on, firstly, and secondly, what kind of research needs to be done. Um, set of targets and common approaches to, uh, to achieving those goals. I think nutrition's a little bit behind in generating that consensus, and I think it w will make that difference. I think what this meeting is about is, is really articulating the big problems and inspiring scientists and the whole community, not just academics like myself, but all the actors to um, think in new ways about how we can solve those problems. Dr. Francesco Branca is Director of Nutrition for Health and Development at the World Health Organization, the Sackler Institute's primary partner in creating this agenda. Here he is to help define some of the big problems the agenda is trying to address. There is uh, certainly a demand to uh, do more to address global nutrition challenges that are becoming uh, more complex because we still have not been able to address uh, the burden of undernutrition, uh, stunting, uh, underweight anemia. At the same time, we have particularly in low and middle income countries an increased risk of dietary related non-communicable diseases meaning diabetes, uh, obesity, heart disease, stroke. So how you 
address these two issues at the same time with a, a coherent set of policies addressing the offer of food and the consumers' uh, opportunities. And uh, we, we need to, to know more in terms of uh, how to um, monitor the issue, how to uh, respond uh, in terms of biological uh, factors, how to design policies and how to deliver the interventions. So, so uh, there is a space of uh, implementing what we know, but there's a big space of identifying innovative avenues. The problems Dr. Branca just described are sometimes called the double burden. The strange paradox of malnutrition and obesity often occurring in the same populations at the same time. There's no disagreement that the double burden exists and that it's a huge global health problem, but there is still quite a lot about it that we don't understand. To tell us a bit about what we do know, here's Dr. Tamid Ahmed from the International Center for Diarrheal Disease Research in Dhaka, Bangladesh. Let me give you one specific example about the slum settlements in a city like Dhaka. Okay? You have, you know, an entire family living in a very small space, okay? So what do women do? They can't do an exercise, you know, there's almost limited physical activity. This is one. Second is, when you have food insecurity, when you're hungry, what do you do? You take everything that is cheap. And the cheap things available happen to be sugary, they happen to be fat-laden, they happen to have less of protein. And this is what women particularly, they do. They have no other alternative. That's why you go to a slum settlement and you will see heavy, overweight women. And they carry children who are underweight, marasmi. In that situation, as in many problematic situations nutritionists are trying to address, the issue is not really our understanding of what constitutes a healthy diet. The issue is getting the people being studied, in this case poor women in Bangladesh, to eat better. As we talked about in the last episode of the podcast, that opens up a huge can of worms involving both the availability of food and the psychology of the targeted group. Here's Dr. Rafael Perez Escamilla, professor of epidemiology at the Yale University School of Public Health. So, very simple. If people had access to more fruits, vegetables, fish, whole grains, and so on, and we're talking about economic access, access through education, if people were to be more physically active, if we paid much more attention to the nutrition of women before they become pregnant, during pregnancy, of their babies during the first years of life, we would be preventing a lot of the, of the problems. There is no big debate about, about that. So the problem becomes one of logistics. In places where people don't have access to healthy food, how can we get them that access? And also one of psychology. In many populations, people can make the choice between healthy and unhealthy food, but they choose the unhealthy food anyway. Clearly, nutrition scientists need a better understanding of why individual people make the choices they make if they want to create public health initiatives that will successfully improve the diets of large communities. This represents a fundamental change in the nature of nutrition science. Since the field first coalesced, its focus has been biochemical. What are the essential nutrients? How do they work in the body? 
But now, as our understanding of the fundamental biology has increased, there's also increased emphasis on successful delivery of nutritional interventions, which is how nutritionists and public health professionals refer to strategies to improve the diet of a group of people in a practical way. Here's Dr. Jean-Pierre Habicht, long-standing professor of epidemiology at Cornell. Let's take the iron. There's been enough research over 100 years to know that women who are anemic in most developing countries are anemic which they don't have enough iron. There's no problem with that construct. Everybody knows that from the, research, the previous research. The problem has been how you get the iron into the mothers. And there, those are things that are totally outside of the biology. We have not come up with any way. We've been working on this for 30 years. We have not come up with a delivery system that works. And here's Dr. Perez Escamilla again. We do know what it is that we need to do. What we don't understand very well is how to do it so that it can be scaled up and function in the real world on a permanent basis. That's, that's what we really, really don't understand. The systems, the environments, where the default, is, the, the default is not to have easy access to lousy food, but to have easy access to healthy and nutritious food. And there are many different ways that that can be achieved, but we have to do research. We have to get much more into the science of program delivery to be able to, to access for people to benefit from the knowledge that we have right now. Studying delivery systems poses a particular challenge because they are especially hard to study with the research methods that nutrition scientists most prefer to employ, the same kinds of randomized control trials that are preferred in all kinds of chemistry and biology. These involve isolating the element you're studying and making sure your test subjects only interact with it in a very specific way while holding a separate group called the control group aside so they are not experiencing that interaction at all. This kind of study is very difficult to set up when you're dealing with nutrition for several reasons. First, you can't control the diet of human beings the way you can the diet of lab animals. And second, holding a control group aside when delivering a life-saving nutrient to starving people would be really hard to justify ethically. So what do we do? How do we set up interventions that help people but from which we can also learn something, and learn as much as we can from the interventions that have already been conducted. One answer might lie in the fact that the social sciences have always used other methods of finding information. Here's Dr. Alan Dangor from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Because a lot of the things we're discussing in nutrition and international development don't lend themselves to randomized controlled trials. And when you think about other ways of asking these questions using different techniques and, and trying to identify the, the results that come from that and bring those together to give us an answer. That's a pretty fundamental shift in the way a researcher would be asked to think from the way they're trained to... I mean, that's, that's a large thing to ask, it seems well, like. Well, I, I think it's a large thing to ask if you're, if you're trained in, in nutrition or health 
but it's not a large thing to ask if you're trained in e economics because they don't do randomized controlled trials. They do all sorts of other things. You know, there are lots of different methods for for asking questions, and, and other people, you know, other other disciplines don't think randomized controlled trials are the bee's knees. They don't think it's the most important way to answer a question. So, so we in public health think it is, uh, and I certainly do. I think it's fantastic. But there are always going to be situations where it's not possible to do a trial, and in those situations, we have to think strategically and and sensibly about you know what what is what what's what constitutes sufficient evidence. Here's Dr. Habicht again. But the issue here is being very clear that you're not going to go anywhere without real funding. And that's funding not just for the research, it's funding for the training, it's funding for establishing institutions where you can get the kinds of people trained like this. There's no institution in the world where you can get trained to do this properly. At Cornell, which we've been trying for years and we've been reasonably successful, how do we do it? We break the rules. We accept people in who are not qualified to come into our division because they don't have the biochemistry. Because I need an economist. Because we need a social anthropologist. But the institutions say, no, 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 no. We do nutrition here. We have to have a different concept of nutrition. But that's not going to happen in the present institutions unless these institutions build centers and so on, which Cornell could easily do. We've got the economists, we've got the social science, everything. We don't have a dime to do it. The money's not there because the concept of the, the need is not understood. Because the need's not understood, there's no reason to fund it. Another pressing need in the realm of delivery, which came up again and again over the course of the conference, is for better communication between the research community, who are the ones determining what people should be eating, and the food industry, who are the ones who actually provide people with the things that they eat. Here's Gordon Bacon, CEO of Pulse Canada, a trade group of farmers who produce certain kinds of beans and other legumes. Yeah, you know, primary agriculture is focused on yield, and to a lesser extent, and in some cases uh, with, with virtually no focus on sort of nutritional quality. But I think that what we can do is go to the next step now and start looking at uh, sort of nutrition as the outcome. And I think that we, when we can start bringing together the, the elements of nutrition and they'll go back to the primary agricultural community and say, can we enhance some of these attributes or traits as part of our breeding process, then we'll have taken a step forward. But the question that I have is, so where are the incentives? Where is the opportunity analysis for what we can do in changing nutritional outcomes for, by providing food companies with the signals uh, of what they can do to make things better? Um, and it will vary by, by population group, etc. But for example, if we are to improve protein quality and protein quantity, if we are to improve fiber level, we know protein and fiber have a huge impact on obesity because they have an impact on satiety. Do we have signals to food companies that are saying, here's what you will be recognized for when you do things right, as opposed to you have too much salt, you have too much of the bad kind of fat, or you have too much sugar. So are there risk analysis? Yes. Are there opportunity analysis about what we can do to formulate food to make it healthier? So I think that's where we need some clarity. It's a, it's a carrot and the stick approach. I think we've been heavy on the stick. I think we need a little more focus on the carrot. Here's Dr. Raoul Bino from Wageningen University in the Netherlands. We all have the same agenda, really, and they need real science also, and scientists also really need real products to come to the market. Otherwise, they, they make products which are not valuable enough, and if the product is not based on innovation on science, the product itself will fail in the market. 
So they need more. They need scientists to make their products. It's very clear. The big major companies come to the European uh, scientists now for for results. Nothing else. And I understand the big issues here also about ethics and about that scientists have to be clear and that the industry has some uh, some uh, reason to work together. Of course. But yeah, uh, if you want to get results, food in the market, you need companies. Here's Mr. Bacon again. So it's a little bit of designing a system from all sides, uh, and certainly with an agricultural background, I'm looking at it and saying, uh, nutrition solutions need to sort of find their way back to the farm and, and look at it from a, a sustainability perspective. Because again, when we start uh, understanding what the destination is, then we can start working our way back through that supply chain and understand where we need to end up. Here's Dr. Anna Hareforth, an independent nutritional consultant. So I think just this, this kind of um, work that we are discussing here this weekend and in, in the working groups, it has everything to do with thinking across disciplines and working across disciplines. And it's relevant nowhere more than nutrition because if you really think about it, nutrition, it isn't really anything by itself. It, it's by definition, you know, people thinking across disciplines and working together. So the old thinking of different disciplines being trained in silos and maybe talking to each other and sort of having a, you know, meet and greet share sharing is that's sort of I think the old way and then the new way is how can we functionally cross? It's not like I do my thing and I talk to you, but we do some research together or we learn the same things across a very broad spectrum. Or um, so it, when we're when we're thinking about new research agendas, for me, that uh, connection between disciplines and between sectors and between partners is what is very current and what's needed in the future. With some final thoughts on the importance of this conference and the research agenda in general, here are Drs. Dangor, Branka, Ahmed, Eskamia, and Havicht. Well, I think this has been a great opportunity to, to bring together a really diverse group of individuals and different expertise, uh, different backgrounds, different disciplinary focuses to ask, you know, to really ask the questions, you know, where are we going with nutrition? What are the key questions that still need to be asked and answered? Um, and, and also, to maybe it's time to take stock and say, what have we done so far? And, uh, and, and over the next 20 years, what do we need to do? You know, there are still lots of unanswered questions. There's still lots of uh, unfinished business. Um, which, which you know, it, we should now know. We shouldn't be having the problems we have on, on the nutrition on this planet because there is sufficient food. So, there are loads of questions that we still need the answers to. And I think that this this meeting has been very helpful and, and and a really good way to take stock and plan for the next 20 years. We have limited resources, and uh, countries also uh, have are overburdened by multiplicity of issues. So we need to uh, be logical, and science can help making that effort to, to uh, uh, identify priorities and, and to uh, concentrate our efforts. Now this uh, you know, Academy of Science, you know, this exercise, this can really you know, turn up the thing uh, as it relates to nutrition research. We don't have any agenda for nutrition research globally. WHO doesn't have that. So if we, if we, the way we are going ahead, if we publish these papers, I can tell you that you know we'll have agencies 
that have a budget for research and development, the first thing that they are going to do is, okay, let's see what's published there. And this is going to be that thing. What I'm seeing now is a convergence of agendas where basic biologists, basic researchers are saying, hmm, you know, this is an opportunity for me to understand better how to choose the most meaningful questions that can be answered uh, through my research. And it is also an opportunity for high-level decision makers, such as the director of nutrition for WHO, to have the evidence, the ammunition that he needs to go to funders, to go to governments and say, if you are able to implement these type of interventions, this is how much money and human suffering you are going to save because of the benefits it will have in the health of all your citizens in the, in the country. So, so that's what I love. That's why I am at this meeting, because it is an innovative meeting in a way that it is allowing for the convergence of an agenda from the very basic to the very applied. If you can do something systematic in defining what the problems are, then you can begin to focus, then you can say, okay, which is the most important? And all the other research that you could do needs to be given lower priority. This podcast has been a presentation of Science and the City and the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science, not-for-profit programs of the New York Academy of Sciences. We welcome your comments on this or any of our programs by email to scienceandthecity at nyas.org. For more information about the Sackler Institute's Global Research Agenda for Nutrition Science, please visit nutritionresearchagenda.org.